friends, it's Haley Hines, aka Bird, and you are tuning in to the Give Them the Bird podcast. This podcast is all about challenging what it means to be healthy and fit. It's about celebrating sustainable behavior change and non-scale victories. And most importantly, it's about giving the bird to the diet industry and societal expectations of body size. Why? Well, because at the end of the day, you have an entire life to live that does not require your body look a certain way. Thanks for tuning in. Now let's give them the bird. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and GTB listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash give them the bird. You've maybe heard of BetterHelp. It's customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. You all know I'm a huge advocate for therapy, and I'm lucky to have a long-standing therapist who I meet with regularly, but that was not always the case. I remember before having decent insurance that I had to stop going to therapy because it was so costly out of pocket. Luckily, BetterHelp is way more affordable than what I was paying. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist who you can start communicating with in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. There are a broad range of expertise available, which may not be available locally depending upon where you are located. So if you're looking into affordable therapy options and are open to online, check out betterhelp.com slash give them the bird for 10% off your first month of therapy. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash give them the bird. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Give Him the Bird. I'm Haley, aka Bird, and on today's episode, I chat with trauma practitioner, certified personal trainer, and corrective exercise specialist, Laura Kudari. Laura is passionate about giving people the tools they need to heal from trauma and cultivate mental health and wellness. Her approach to strength training restores nervous system health, fosters a sense of safety in the body, and provides adjunctive support to people processing trauma so they may move beyond surviving and begin thriving. Her work has been widely recognized by the trauma and fitness community, and she's been featured on BuzzFeed, Upworthy, Outside Online, Medium, Tonic, NPR, and Girls Gone Strong. Her holistic educational programs draw from body-based trauma healing modalities, neuropsychological models, psychodynamic theory, mindfulness practices, and exercise science. Laura's practice grew out of her own experience healing from trauma, not just in therapy, but on the gym floor too. She works with clients around the world and lives in New York City with her family and two cats. In this episode, Laura covers all things trauma and strength training for me. We talk about what counts as trauma, what a trauma response might look like, the importance of having and respecting others' boundaries, and so much more. We take a deep dive into how movement can be used to work with trauma, which is really what her book, Lifting Heavy Things, Healing Trauma One Rep at a Time, is all about. There's a lot covered in this episode, and while you may be thinking like, oh my God, this is about trauma, it's going to be really intense, it really isn't. It's a super cool, informative episode that I think will leave you looking at movement in a whole new way. Before we dive in, I just want to remind you that if you are enjoying this podcast, feel free to head over to Apple Podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe. It takes less than a minute, and it's a super easy way to support GTB and help me bring on more amazing guests just like Laura. All right, now more of what you came here for. Enjoy my conversation with Laura Kudari. Welcome to Give Them the Bird podcast, Laura Kudari. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited for this one. Yeah. As we were talking about before we started recording, um, I'm super jazzed, like over the freaking moon that you're here. Um, so to get us started, why don't you just tell us a little bit more about who you are, what you do, all the things. Sure. So I am a trauma-informed personal trainer. So a little bit about what that means is I'm a certified personal trainer. I am a corrective exercise specialist. And then I also have a background in different um, trauma healing modalities and trauma in general. And that is really what I use to inform my work. Um, So, and when I talk about trauma, I'm talking about both emotional and physical trauma. Uh, And maybe we're gonna get more into what I mean by trauma a little bit later on, because that in itself is a pretty big word. Um, But I'm also an author. Uh, My book, Lifting Heavy Things, Healing Trauma One Rep at a Time came out in May. And it's all about turning any sort of movement or exercise practice into a healing practice. Um, And, you know, I just like to teach and talk about this stuff and make it really accessible and a little less scary. Mm. And your book is amazing. 
Thank it is you. just like so cool. Again, as we were saying before we started recording, even though I have somewhat of a background in mindfulness, not a deep, long history of mindfulness, but just my own practice. And I've learned a little bit about it. Um, and being a, like a fitness professional, the all, everything in it was still so relevant to me. And like I told you, it's so exciting to know that folks who maybe don't have those backgrounds can be impacted so profoundly. So again, really excited that you're here. Um, I'm curious, can you tell us a little bit more about how you got into this work? Sure. It's uh, not the usual path. I um, didn't become a personal trainer until my uh, second half of my 30s. Um, I was not somebody you would have expected to have become a personal trainer. And I, I like to share that with people because I think we think of, we sort of get an image in our head of what a personal trainer is, what a personal trainer should look like, what a personal trainer says and does and all sorts of stuff. Um, and I was like the kid who cut gym class to smoke cigarettes in the park. I didn't want to have anything to do with my body for a lot of my life. And I only started to work out begrudgingly to manage chronic back pain. And it took years before I started to actually find something that I really loved to do with my body in the gym and that happened to be strength sports. Um, and I just found it really empowering. And it became a really big part of my life and it really shifted my relationship to myself and the world. Um, but separate from my life in the gym, I experienced an acute trauma, developed PTSD, and that really shifted my whole relationship to working out. Um, and it became uh, harmful at one point and enough that I wound up full circle with a very severe back injury um, and really couldn't walk or anything like that. And I wanted to get back to training and I was desperate to find a trainer or a coach who understood, um, you know, once I did my PT, somebody who understood how trauma was impacting me. And what I was experiencing was that actually when I was like in it before I was really getting the help, my mentality, which was a very much like a fight aggressor mentality, was so celebrated. Um, and I was way overtraining and I was looking for the first time in my life incredibly shredded. And people were like, yes, be like Laura. And it, no, no one should have <laughs> been like Laura. Um, and uh, so it was really just a, a battle, this constant battle. And I felt like I can't get people in fitness at least here where I am, I can't find people to listen to me. I can't find a coach. Um, and I was like, so I'm going to figure it out for myself. And after I figured it out for myself, I decided I really wanted other people to have this. Um, and if I couldn't change it from the outside, I was going to change it from the inside. So I became a personal trainer to do the trauma work. Um, and so that's how I wound up here. Yeah. That just gave me chills on my legs when you said, if I couldn't do it from the outside, I'll do it from the inside. Um, and I think I really like how, and I was somewhat familiar with your story just because I read your book and I love how you started like the anti-movement person back when you were younger. And I love the stories that you shared with that. And then just to see kind of the evolution of your relationship with, with movement and fitness, um, was really cool. And so, I mean, that's really one thing that I try to do on the podcast is just like challenge what it means to be healthy and fit. Because like you mentioned, so often people praise us for looking a certain way, but little do they know that that can actually be, we can be doing harmful, unhealthy things in order to look that way. Um, and so it just aligns so well with what this podcast is all about. Um, and seeing that, you know, what you look like isn't indicative of your health. Um, and I think too, just how you used movement in different ways um, has been, it was just really cool to read about. Um, and now to hear you talk about it too, it's, um, it's a really, it's like serendipitous. It's a really cool thing. Um, so yeah, I'm, so you mentioned in the beginning that, you know, trauma can be physical, but it can also be emotional. And I want to talk a little bit more about trauma because I think um, in, I mean, previously when I would hear the word trauma, like years ago, it was almost like the stigma attached to mm. it. Like, I don't know if that's the right word to use, but it was just like, 
oh, like she's faced some trauma or something like that, you know, like under your breath kind of thing. Um, And now we're, I'm hearing about it more frequently, which I think is a great thing. Um, But I'm also curious to know, like what quote unquote counts as trauma? Um, How do you know if, oh yeah, I've experienced trauma or not. And does it really matter if you can define it as being a traumatic event? Um, So I'm curious if you can talk more about what counts as trauma again, quote unquote, and then maybe like, what would a trauma response look like? And then maybe after that, we can get into like how movement might trigger that, but we'll start with just the overview. (laughs) Sure. Yeah, no, those are great questions. And I will say, I agree with your observation that like, it used to be like trauma was like whispering. Um, And she had, she, she lived a traumatic life or like she grew up in a house with like, yeah, it was like very under, under our breath kind of thing. And something that I started to notice as I was doing this work, I was watching, I don't remember which season of the real housewives of Orange County, (laughs) um, but they get in a um, dune buggy accidents and two of them wind up being diagnosed with PTSD and talking about it. Um, and, and it was not just the physical. It wasn't, they actually, their physical injuries weren't that bad. It was terrifying, right? And um, again, like the next season of the New York Housewives, somebody's talking about trauma and having gone to uh, jail due to a uh, scene they caused uh, on their ex-husband's lawn. Um, <laughs> And I'm sitting there watching these Bravo shows and I'm like, and they're talking about trauma and they're talking about trauma very openly and in the way that I'm understanding as somebody who's doing this work, which is trauma can be anything. (laughs) What is traumatic to me may not be traumatic to you and vice versa. Um, Trauma is not really the way I work with it and the way I talk about it, the narrative, but actually anything that happens that was too much, too fast for you to process and sort of leaving you stuck in this overwhelmed threat response. That's sort of still in your system. You never got to process it. And what the never getting to process it really has to do with what happened immediately after. And also maybe the whole history you're bringing, which is why we can't say there are certain things we know can are likely to be traumatic, right? Um, but even those things, you know, we talk about war and soldiers and PTSD. Some people come through, some veterans come through um, the same experiences with PTSD and others don't, right? And that's because it really has to do with the whole experience. So I can't, we tend to say, we tend to describe the narrative as a trauma, um, but really the trauma is the impact of that narrative on the person, if that makes sense. And then the other one that people really, the only way people ever talked about trauma other than trauma, the whispering (laughs) kind, would be like um, in the ER, Right. And we think Mm. of like, you know, that kind of physical trauma, which often, you know, has a sort of this more psychological, emotional component to it as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's, um, that's really interesting what you were saying about like the example with some soldiers come back with PTSD, some don't, even though they may have had like the same experience, like physical, you know, experience. Um, And that reminds me of, I read it in your book, but also I had read, um, oh shoot, I should have written down the name before this, but uh, Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness. And I can't think of who the author is, but I know he's a big deal in the mindfulness world, um, but where they talk about the window of tolerance. And I know this wasn't on the outline, but I'm curious if you can talk a little bit more about the window of tolerance. Cause I feel like that kind of relates to like, we all have this different window of tolerance um, and where, like what you said, what might trigger me to be outside of my window of tolerance, maybe for somebody else, they'd still be comfortable in their window of tolerance, if that makes sense. Yeah, of course. So um, the window of tolerance is was a model created by uh, Dan Siegel, Dr. Dan Siegel. And um, it's a great way to sort of explain these 
amounts of overwhelm and also what may be too much for one person and be wind up being traumatizing for one person may not be for another. Um, and so when I don't have a visual thing, since we're on a podcast, <laughs> uh, I, I ask people to imagine a window, like um, just like a double hung window and imagine opening it a little bit. And that opening uh, is the amount of nervous system arousal that, you know, you uh, as an individual can handle at a given time, right? What is your capacity for nervous system arousal? And all of our, our nervous system arousal fluctuates all day long, not just like in intense moments. Like when we wake up and we start to like move about and maybe we have some coffee, you know, theoretically our nervous system arousal is increasing. Um, if you have that sort of after lunch slump, your nervous system arousal is going down, right? You go to a hit class, your nervous system's up. <laughs> and, and maybe it's going up and down, maybe up and down if it's nice and resilient. If it's less resilient, it's not coming down as much. Um, but all day, it's kind of moving through these cycles. And then, and we, everyone has this window. Um, and this window can change. This window can be wider and this window can be narrower. Um, and when we are living with trauma, we have a couple things going on where uh, possibly our window is narrower. It gets closed a little bit. And um, we have less capacity for stress overall, our nervous system arousal. And sometimes they, they're not exactly interchangeable. I do use them interchangeably sometimes, uh, just in case anyone gets confused. Um, and so that's, one thing. Another thing is, if you are living with trauma or even chronic stress, you may be sort of towards the top of your window of tolerance all the time or towards the bottom. And we're going to get into now, like what's above and what's below, um, which means you're already existing most of the time, very close to the edge of how much you can tolerate, right? So more arousal, more stress, uh, somebody cuts you off in traffic. Um, and that's, that's the thing for me. I, yes. <laughs> like, I am hyper aroused <laughs> at that point. Like, yeah. and you just pop off. I, I have totally gotten so embarrassed, like screaming at drivers with my daughter in the car. Um, and so, okay, that's an example of hyper arousal. Exactly speaking up over the top of your window of tolerance. So above the window of tolerance is hyper arousal. Um, so you've been cut off in traffic or your boss um, begs, you know, does something that you really don't like. I mean, there are all sorts of things. It's just one too many things. It's the straw that broke the camel's back. And maybe you're feeling irritable or um, more sensitive to touch more an increase in aggression. So um, maybe you're not somebody who swears a lot, but now you're, suddenly you're swearing a lot. You know, I, <laughs> I know like I have a bit of a mouth, but like when it gets really bad, I'm like, oh, I have to, I should notice that, right? Um, so sort of irritability, argument, picking fights, um, taking off, right? Thinking about flight, you know, things like that. Um, anything that sounds like fight, flight probably moving into a hyper aroused state. And below the window of tolerance, hypo arousal is like your to-do, you look at your to-do list and you just sit down on the couch and put on Netflix and zone out and like let that autoplay keep going, right? Um, numbing out, losing sense of time, feeling disconnected or dissociated from your body, um, a loss of sensitivity, a uh, loss of connection to your senses. These are, and this is another way when you're overwhelmed, your body might respond and that's hypo arousal. Neither of these are places where now your nervous system is in something that feels good to it. These are both overwhelmed states. Um, and if you exist in these states easily or a lot, there may be some sort of trauma history there. I don't know how important, you know, you mentioned like knowing if it was a trauma or not. As somebody who doesn't work with the story, but just works with the nervous system where it's at, if you are having a lot of symptoms in either one, 
um, that's worth addressing, right? We're, we're talking about overall wellness and quality of life. Um, so if you're really prone to kind of going down below or up above your window of tolerance, maybe it was um, an old thing. I, you know, we don't always know why. In my work, I don't know. I certainly don't always know why. I don't ask for people's stories. Um, you just, you, you work with that, right? And try to increase that capacity for arousal and also hopefully the um, resilience of the nervous system to move through it. And that's the last thing, which is like, we're all going to have days or more where we leave our window of tolerance. That's actually not the end of it. It's always like, how do I not trigger somebody? And like, yeah, you don't want to trigger somebody, but really what you want if you're, you know, working with clients in this capacity is to be able to help your client become more resilient. So when they are triggered, they can recover more quickly because we're all, we all have things that send us out of our window of tolerance. And the question is, is how quickly can you return to baseline from there? Mm. Yeah, that makes me think about like your example with the car cutting me off or like when they don't use their freaking blinkers, like mm -hmm. come on, their turn signals. Um, but it reminds me of like, you can't control everything. You know, you can't control what's outside um, right. in those situations. And so I'm curious, like, would you, do you feel like saying, um, like the mindfulness piece of it is really some, I don't want to say the key, but like a key to building that resilience, like being able to notice when you're, you know, getting hyper hypo aroused. What do you yeah, think? I mean, that's, that's the, the mindfulness practice, right? Mindfulness, um, has been shown to, has been found to uh, promote, less uh, emotional reactivity, right? Um, and it is sort of, I always think of it as it takes that time between the trigger and the reaction that always used to be so knee jerk that maybe now you know, oh, that's a thing I do. Maybe you're in counseling and you've been talking about it and your therapist is like, well, why did you, why did you respond by <laughs> screaming? like a crazy person um, and I uh, just like really getting, you know, I just being so overwhelmed. Um, so I'm like, okay, that's something I know I do. And having that mindfulness practice of noticing, um, noticing when there are shifts, noticing when your attention wavers, you know, all that practicing, noticing, noticing. Um, so the next time somebody cuts you off, maybe you still yell, but you notice it as it's coming out of your mouth. And so maybe the next time, just as you go to yell, you notice you're about to yell. And instead of reacting, you choose to act, right? And so I do think, um, I do think a lot of that comes from the mindfulness component, just being able to even notice what your triggers are um, and the, the embodied movement of being able to like, I am, practicing in my exercise, staying, you know, my mindfulness work for uh, folks who haven't looked at the book yet is about uh, staying is the focuses of the body moving under the stress of exercise, right? So staying with the body under the stress of exercise. So now I'm going to be practiced at staying with the body under the stress of bad driving, <laughs> right? Um, so Yes. I do think mindfulness is a very big part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get into the movement. Um, when you were just saying that, I was thinking like the gym is the practice for everyday life. Like what, you know, mm -hmm. the skills that you learn and the ability to stay with your body during movement then can translate into those everyday stressors or triggers or whatever they are. Um, so yeah, let's talk about movement and trauma and, Again, you're the expert of your book. So wherever you think makes sense to talk, do you know, to start with, but I'm curious, like, how can we use movement? I mean, you, you just explained like staying mindful with the body and, you know, staying in the, in the present with the way your body feels, but I'm curious if you can walk us through more, like, how can we use movement to help release trauma or to better deal with trauma? Um, and again, that's like, obviously the whole point of your book but I'm wondering if you can hit on like some of your favorite points regarding that. Sure. So I actually, um, and I, I get, I get a little, uh, 
picky here, <laughs> or like, um, but I actually don't think of it as releasing trauma. So this mm. is a big uh, difference. I see a lot of like um, people using movement for catharsis. They're trying to get rid of something. And so in the act of trying to throw off um, an emotional experience that's not feeling so good, um, they're just moving and like almost um, and not usually being in the body right like and you know there's a time and a place for that like I'm not saying you shouldn't do that but like you know those um, as somebody who has a weightlifting background like I have those days where I just want to smash weight and that's <laughs> fine but that's not going to help me um, really at all. It's a, it's a quick fix, maybe. Maybe it feels good in the moment. But the fact is, is that I've probably moved pretty aggressively and maybe not as well because I haven't been paying attention to my body. And I'm not that great of a weightlifter that like, I'm so athletic that I can just move well without paying attention. <laughs> um, you know, like I need to be paying attention to move well. I need to be paying attention and also experiencing all of the feelings that are in the body. And that's, you're not doing that when you're like, oh, I'm going to smash weight, beast mode like that, or like whatever it is, like, I'm going to go run, you know, I, this is not something I do, but I know lots of people who just want to like, they're like, that's how they deal with it. They get on cardio equipment or they put on their running shoes and they just run. And yes, there's some sort of uh, processing extra stress that's still, you know, we talked about, so moments of overwhelm, you have like too much stress. And that's one way to kind of let off some steam, but that's not going to help you if you've got this chronic pattern that's showing up with trauma. And you really, um, the way I work with clients, using strength training to process trauma is really about finding um, the edge of where it, where a movement, it's like being able to be in the body, but it's work. And, tapping into that work and also stepping back from that work. So we're not overriding anything. We're not crushing it. I mean, we are crushing it, but like, it doesn't yeah. look like that. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's, it's slow motion. It's, um, it's a different type of intensity and it's a different type of hard, but it's a way of really starting to communicate with the body and notice. And also um, eventually, like if you are really disconnected with a part, because that is one way trauma shows up in the body, is really slowly working towards rebuilding that connection. Um, and that can be really hard work. That can be really triggering and you just sort of have to figure out ways to uh, slowly approach that. I, that is a big, big, big part of my work, right? As um, you know, trainers will see, you know, notice their clients like move really well with uh, the right upper back moves really well, but their left upper back doesn't. Or maybe you take a close look and you realize like it's really developed on one side and not on the other. And there's all sorts of reasons. It could not, it could not be trauma related. Generally in my work, people are coming to me specifically because that's what they're dealing with. Um, and maybe because of something that has happened they are disconnected from this part of their body. And it's something I get more into in the book as to like what's going on there. Um, but we're not going to rush through activation drills to get that left upper back online. We are gonna do activation work, um, and but we're gonna do it real slowly and starting to really pay attention to like, is it okay for me to be connected here? and start to realize when it is okay and when it isn't. Um, that's a really big part of the way I use movement is actually going slow and really experiencing what's going on in the body. But in an only little bits at a time. So, because I remember trauma is, it was all too much too fast. And now it's still like, you still have this unprocessed response. So now we're gonna tap into that unprocessed just a teeny bit at a time to start to process it, which you can't do if you're just checked out and moving. Yeah. It makes me think of like the whole phrase of like exercise is my therapy. It's like, 
I've learned that movement and exercise can be therapeutic, but it's not the end all be all. Um, that's what I learned from Stephanie Roth Goldberg, um, embodied mm-hmm. psychotherapist on Instagram. She was on the podcast and super cool. Um, so you mentioned like do a little bit here and then if you're okay with it, move, can you talk more about like, what does it, how do we know if we're okay with something before moving on to like the next level or going deeper? Does that make sense? Yeah, I guess, are we talking, um, are we talking about like just folks doing this on their own versus is that like who we're, um, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Or even I just think about like, I, I think in your book you talk about, I think it was related to the upper back and like doing a rowing drill. Mm-hmm. Um, how, yeah, just, you, you just mentioned like, if you're okay with it, um, is that related to like the window of tolerance? Like if you're noticing that you're like getting, you know what I mean? Exactly. So if you're staying in your window of tolerance, good. If you notice, or if you are a trainer who's working with somebody or a coach who's working with somebody and you notice in them, um, those things I was talking about, and they do show up a lot of the time in the gym, like a lot more cursing or frustration with oneself, not, and I don't, if somebody is kind of naturally like that, then that's not, we're talking about a shift, right? right? Mm -hmm. Or um, really can't stay at all with that. They're, they're look, you know, normally they're pretty focused and now they're like looking around all over the place. Um, They keep kind of changing, asking you lots of disorganized questions. Uh, This generally like a, a shift in how they usually are, right? that's when you start to notice. The other thing that's really interesting, um, and this is sort of a side note, a lot of the time, um, because of the way nervous systems mirror each other, and this is a big part of my work, if you as the trainer or coach are finding yourself getting really irritable in a way that doesn't seem to make sense, or really spacey in a way that doesn't seem to make sense. That might be you, but it also is worth looking at your client. And I think a lot of trainers sort of read bodies and stuff. And so is there, are, what's the, what are they doing? Because you may actually just be picking up on their spaciness, depending on how you are, your relationship with that person. Um, so you're just kind of constantly checking in and asking, and it's a conversation and kind of, <laughs> Um, almost to a point where you feel like a broken record, you know, reminding your clients to check in, ask them, how does this feel? Um, and having those conversations. And when they say like, no, I don't want to. Okay. And you could have possibly, if you have that kind of relationship, a conversation as to like, I'd love to know what like happened there when you were like, no, I don't want to do it. Um, and then you can get into a conversation to learn something, but not to convince them to do it, right? We're working on um, a big part of trauma work is restoring your boundaries and your sense of agency. And so if you are working with some, I mean, I think all people should be on each other's boundaries and stuff, but especially if you're doing sort of work with somebody who you know has a trauma history or you are calling yourself somebody who works with trauma, you absolutely, if somebody is resistant, you need to honor that boundary and then maybe have like a really open discussion about it because you might learn something Um, and then pivot, right? So you need to have a lot of different ways to uh, reach certain uh, physical and emotional goals that you're going after because the movement you may have plans may not be the movement you're going to be able to do. Mm. And it's interesting because that's like almost counter to what we hear in fitness culture, like (laughs) conventional fitness culture. It's like zone out, tune out, whatever it is, and just get the work done. Um, And I remember doing one of the exercises in your book because I love the way your book is laid out. It's like, I love the pauses that you provide, like take a pause and check in with your body. But then um, I don't remember what you call them, but it's basically like the ho- kind of like homework. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Take action. Yeah, take action. There we go. I was like, I know that it sounds better than homework. Um, and <laughs> it's, it's not I, homework. It's, it's not, not homework, homework. <laughs> but it's really helpful. So please do your homework. 
even know. Um, but it, it reminds me of, I remember I was doing, there's one where you have, have us hold, um, do like an isometric hold of an exercise. And I remember doing it with like the lunges, mm-hmm. um, and just like really tuning in and paying attention to like what muscles were firing and which ones I could feel and maybe which ones I couldn't. And I had a period where after I read the book, I had a period, it was like several days long where now, and I, and I shared it openly on Instagram where I felt like really, I say just disconnected to my body. And my therapist was like, yeah, I think that was a little bit of dissociation. And we like kind of talked through it and everything. But I remember I went out because we have a gym, like a separate garage and it has a bunch of equipment in it. And I went out there and I literally thought about you. And I was like, I am just not connected at all to my body. So I ended up doing like just a super slow yoga flow where I like held all of my warriors for a really like longer period of time and like tuned in. Um, And I maybe it was a placebo, but I swear to God, I felt like more tuned into the moment. Like I had an appointment that afternoon and I could actually like comprehend what the student was saying. Um, and so, yeah, I, I love like the different exercises and everything that you do and how it's counter to what we often hear in the gym. Um, and yeah, I just think that that, that difference is so interesting, but it's so helpful. It needs to be talked about. Yeah. I mean, I think it goes to, again, like, what are your goals? And that is a whole other episode that we could have a conversation about. (laughs) Um, uh, But like if you are, and this is something, a lot of like the way I was training before I got hurt would have been fine if I was only an athlete and not like a person who had a life. So like I was, there is no professional weightlifting, but let's pretend, right? So (laughs) we're going to pretend that there's like a professional powerlifting, whatever. And so that would be fine for me to be training like that because also in my day, would I be, I'd be paid to recover. Um, And I would be paid to eat a certain way and to really pay attention to all of my health. And also there would be an on season, there would be season rather and an off season. But what we tend to do when, um, and a lot of the time in fitness culture is whether it's like you're just, you know, showing up for fitness classes or you're really following some sort of program, but like, depending on who your coach is, or if you're not, if you're just kind of doing your own is to start to train. A lot of people will in the world I came up in are like training, like they are elite athletes and they are not that doesn't mean that they're not athletic or that they're not meddling in things on the weekends, but they are having full lives and they are kind of going all the time, right? Um, And so there, you know, if you're training for a competition, this sort of push through, we should have a, you know, that's worth having conversation and considering. If you are training to improve your quality of life, why work so hard that you hurt all the time and are exhausted? Um, and so then we start to get into the real reasons behind why we are moving the way we're moving. And it's hard, it's hard. It's culturally, it's hard to show up at the gym and do what I do, <laughs> like, to just sort of move really slowly, which means less weight and like, mm-hmm. um, you know, all of these things, because it's different. It's different. Mm -hmm. And so um, I get that we can get really swept up in the kind of culture all around us, especially Mm -hmm. if you train like in a CrossFit box or in a, or depending on what it's, you know, the culture is sort of like in the gyms in your neighborhood, Mm -hmm. um, what's going on around you. It can be hard Mm -hmm. to really focus on yourself, you know, and I think that's true in anything. I think it's true in yoga, which is supposed to be all about yourself. And like, mm-hmm. how many of us are busy wanting to look like the person to the right or the left of us in yoga? Yes. My <laughs> ego is like taken over when I'm in a yoga class. Yeah, I want to win at yoga. There's no winning at yoga. Yeah, I, I totally feel that. And I was thinking too, before you even mentioned CrossFit, because I used to do CrossFit and that was what it was. I was trying to train, I mean, not as intensely, but train like those really competitive athletes. And I talked about it on the last, um, episode of the podcast with, uh, 
um, Barb, the non-diet trainer, she's on Instagram, Mm -hmm. but yeah, we, we just talked about that, how it's like, they get paid to recover. They get paid to like eat all these really fancy meals and all this stuff. Like that's, you know, that's just not realistic for everybody. So I'm really glad that you bring that up. Um, can you talk more about, about your book and about how, um, about like the exercises and how it's formatted and laid out and what, um, kind of motivated you to write it in that way compared to other books that I've read, whether about movement or not, it's just kind of like you read through, there's no suggested pauses. Um, yeah. Can you talk more about that? Sure. So um, the pauses, the pauses are popular, which I'm excited by. Um, Love the pauses. So good. So as somebody who studies trauma, I spend a lot of time reading a lot of uh, hard to read triggering things um, <laughs> and trying to digest them. And I go to trainings that are about learning and not about processing. So again, it's like heavy. I feel like it's a very heavy subject. And in fact, I know, like, when I say, oh, I work with trauma. The, the response um, sometimes is like, you know, uh, Brene Brown talks about, you know, when in her very famous TED talk about how when people, when she's like, I research whatever, uh, um, people are like, oh, I, I, I inspire that response in some people as well. And they think <laughs> I'm going to be a real Debbie Downer. Um, and then I start talking about the Real Housewives. So yeah. <laughs> I, I knew I liked you. Yeah. <laughs> um, I wanted my book to be readable, you know, when I suggest other readings to people and I'm constantly giving them uh, warnings and sort of cues to pay attention and to pace themselves um, and to think, would you prefer audiobook or visual book? You know, these sort of considerations. It's like, I want my book to actually be like readable and digestible. Um, And those pauses are similar to what I do with my clients when I'm like, is this okay? Check in with yourself. Is this okay? Like, are we, are we progressing? Like, um, or are you just checking out and going back to old movement patterns and not really paying attention to your body? So this is the same thing. Like, are we all just existing in our head? it should not be a surprise. I'm a big nerd and I'm very good at being in my head. Um, but I am not happy when I spend all the time in my head I, because I haven't been paying attention to my body being like, nah, right? You know, and like waving its hands. So I'm asking everybody, like, make sure you are comfortable reading this right now um, and to take care of yourself. And I, because I don't, while I certainly don't get into anything too heavy back again to what is triggering for some folks is not triggering for others. We don't know what people's triggers are. And if you're seeing yourself in some of these stories, um, you know, and I'm just talking about like, not, you know, not feeling like good in my body and those sorts of things, but that's really loaded for a lot of people. Um, You know, take care of yourself while you read that part. And that's what that was about. Um, that was a, a big part of it. Was I just want people to be a little more gentle with themselves, even if they're people who smash weight. I want yeah. them to be more <laughs> gentle with themselves. We can smash weight and be gentle. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. I love it. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, then the, the yeah the oh, take no, what action. were you going to say? Or the take yeah, action. Take actions. Tell me more about those. Yeah. So um, my some of my most favorite writers and sort of inspirations for my own writing are uh, food writers who write like personal essays around food, right? So Molly Weisenberg, Ruth Reichel are like the first two who come to mind. Um, When you, there are other wonderful authors and generally it's maybe not every chapter, sometimes it is, uh, will end with a recipe that was referred to in the essay. Um, And I write all sorts of essays, many of which never get seen, although I'm (laughs) changing that now. Um, And I do, I do actually do food writing as well. And I tend to add the relevant recipe at the end. Um, And so I was like, well, this book has always starts with sort of the memoir 
then there's the research, so why not the recipe, which in this case was a practical exercise. And also that's how I learn, you know, it was funny, as I mentioned, like I'm a big nerd and like to be in my head, but I'm a kinesthetic learner is something I've learned in recent years. Um, and so are other people, you know, and uh, so just giving the opportunity um, and just to shift gears and check in with yourself and learn tools. I mean, I can sit here like and talk about tools, but it's just not the same thing as like practicing them. And at the same time, we were joking, like, you know, do the exercises, but I'm very clear in the intro to the book, it's just like, this is your book. Thanks for buying it or reading it, borrowing it from the library or a friend. Um, use it as you want to do the exercises. Don't do the exercises. That's your call. Like everything is an invitation. So again, it's another option and it's certainly not required. Yeah. They're really cool though, because I think it's like, especially I can imagine for somebody that maybe doesn't have the background in fitness, like being able to try those things in the comfort of your own home, which is another thing you talk about in the beginning is like setting up your environment so that like, you know, you want to move or that you feel more comfortable moving. Um, I can just imagine that it's a lot easier or it's more helpful to be able to walk through that exercise compared to just reading about it and then having to do it when you get to the gym and then thinking like, oh my gosh, I don't want to sit here in like an isometric, you know, squat or something in front of all these people. So I think it's, it's really helpful again, both for me with the background that I have, but I can imagine for folks that don't, don't have the movement background, um, as well. So I love that they're included in there. They're so, they're so cool. Thanks. I, yeah. And I, I enjoyed it. You know, there's also um, a combination. So some are really almost more meditative, some are writing based, um, some are very practical, like, oh, you would like to maybe do some movement and don't know where to start. We're going to make some lists, you know, <laughs> like, um, and exercises as well. And I, I think, I know my, what I try to do with my client, I mean, this is a lot of what I try to do with my clients, everything from like, let's meet you where you're at, move you through, and then send you off prepared to go do the thing you want to do, right? So that was really important to me that that was in the book as well. Um, I don't, you know, uh, my clients, I generally, I always see myself as like, I'm like a, a place you sort of stop off at and then I'm going to help you get equipped to go do the thing it is that you wanted to do but felt you needed a little support getting to, right? Like I am not a destination. So mm, Yeah, you're just a, you're stop along the journey. Stop yes. along the journey. Yeah. <laughs> um, one thing I wanted to hit on too. So I think it was in chapter nine, your experience, you talk about, um, I think it was like a friend, Rachel kind of probing to know more about your, your own specific trauma, um, and how much it impacted you. And I just really like how the whole book highlighted this importance of not needing to share the details of our trauma. Cause I think that, um, whether from my own experience or just from what I've heard on social media, it's like, we feel like sometimes we have to tell our stories in order to be for them to be believed, which is just really harmful. And so I love the, that you, the, throughout the whole book, you talk about like, this is your story. You can tell whoever you want. You can tell however much you want of it. You don't have to tell anything at all. And so I think that wasn't really empowering for folks who have experienced trauma. Um, and I also also think like so often as friends, like again, um, the woman, Rachel, in your story or in your book, we like try to push others to open up thinking that it will help them, um, but we know it can hurt. And so I'm wondering if you can talk more about, you know, the boundaries and the context of trauma and just the importance of having them both for ourselves and for respecting other people's. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge... That is like a big hot button issue for me. Um, so yeah, just to like back up for those who don't know, in this whole book, um, I actually, and in my whole public life, I don't share my trauma story. Um, and it started as a thing because I didn't feel safe sharing publicly. And in fact, I was like totally freaked out. I was like, how am I going to write this book I want to write? And I don't want to tell anybody my story. And everybody's going to want to know my story, but it's very important to me to own it and not just sort of throw it out there. Um, and what I realized was 
pretty quickly, oh, hey, I know that I can do this because I've been doing it for so long, kind of not being super public, um, but also having encountered people who pressed people, you know, where it would have gotten me more press, friends pressing because they wanted to know what was wrong. Um, but it didn't feel okay. Like I had dealt with a lot of that pressure and I realized like, I don't have to share my story to get the help at the end of the day. And I don't have to share my story to be of service. And now it's like, I'm like, yep, I don't tell my story. And people like, you know, a podcast, be like, I know I'm not supposed to ask about your story. And I was like, well, you can ask about my story because I'll tell you, I'm not going to tell it to you. And this is why, Mm -hmm. because I want to be an example for people who don't feel ready yet. Mm -hmm. Um, And a big part of practicing feeling your body move. Um, So doing the lunge and, you know, holding warrior and really paying attention to your body under stress or in general is being able to check in with your body because that has so much more information than your head. Like you don't think your feelings, you feel your feelings and you don't think your boundaries, you feel your boundaries. Wow. So in that story I'm talking about, I actually can feel her, like I feel like something is pressing on my boundaries, um, like on my edges, my body's edges. And at the time, I don't, I didn't have this kind of language, but it was such a visceral experience. I was really easily able to write about it years later. Um, I know what it feels like when I'm at that edge, when I'm at my boundaries edge. And you can't, we always tell people like, hold your boundaries, girl, enforce your boundaries. (laughs) How can you enforce your boundaries if you don't know your boundaries? Mm -hmm. You can't feel them. So practicing feeling them. So when, if somebody asks you, to disclose something and you pause and it doesn't feel right. Um, and actually we can do this really quick. Like just imagine, it doesn't have to be nothing, nobody terrible, just like somebody kind of like is coming over to give you a hug. And for whatever reason, you don't want them to hug you. Maybe they're like really stinky or sweaty or something. Like close your eyes and imagine and notice what your body does. So for me, my hands come up. They don't come up, actually, sometimes they come up like this, um, but sometimes they come up like this. But this is me actually, like there's an impulse to, and I sort of constrict, right? That is about like, oh, I don't want that hug. That's a boundary. So when you feel feelings like that, when you, but if you're not able to pay attention to your body, you're not gonna feel that, right? So when you feel something like that, that's a boundary and it is, so hard for us sometimes to enforce it. And then when we are trying to be a friend and you see your friend in distress and you really want to help them, you're like, no, tell me, tell me, um, you know, let it go. It's like, they're, they're not ready to, for whatever reason, don't take it personally. I mean, maybe it's personal, but we don't right. know that. <laughs> so don't jump to that conclusion. Um, and let them have the space and instead offer to, um, you know, if they're really shut down and tight, maybe offer, why don't we go for a walk and grab a coffee? Maybe while you're walking even, they may shift and feel okay. But in that moment, they don't feel okay sharing with you. And yeah, my friend wanted to be my friend. Right. She wasn't being a like a gossip or intrusive or anything. She thought she was being helpful. You know, oh my God, Laura, I want to help. Um, But it really, I was overwhelmed and like lost my day because I shared when it didn't feel, my body didn't feel like it's safe. And that's not to say it wasn't safe. That's a different conversation. But I wasn't, my my body wasn't processing it like it was safe, which meant Mm -hmm. it wasn't safe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really cool exercise. Even that you just like close your eyes and think about it. Like my first reaction was like to lean back and like, kind of like my shoulders cave in, but like physically like, Ooh, like maybe it had to deal with who I was imagining (laughs) hugging me. Like, but But you had um, a body reaction and we have body reactions. And like, so one of the things, you know, I learned about like when you're asking for, um, as a coach or a trainer, this is something I share with people that I learned from my own teacher, my own SD teacher, uh, 
who has a background in physical therapy as well. It's like, when you go to ask for consent for a touch, you want a positive a yes, both verbally and physically. So somebody, I'm gonna, so you may offer like, or you may say, is it okay if I put my hands on your shoulders? You're really good about asking. And your client says, yes, but their shoulders go up to their ears. Are they really saying yes? No, their body is saying no. They're saying yes, it's coming out of their mouth and out of their thoughts for whatever reason, but some part of them is likely saying no. And so, you know, you may want to sort of pivot and say, actually, why don't we try this? You know, use a different type of cue. Um, but, you know, our bodies tell us things like baby, that babies who don't, babies don't have words. And we figure out if they want to be held or they want to be put down or whatever based on their body language. That's how we communicate with them when they're pre-verbal. That's how we uh, know, you know, if we're paying attention when we're messing with a pet, that's how we know they don't have words. Their bodies tell us like no or yes. Um, you know when not to pick up an animal. You know, do you listen to it? I don't know, but you knew you shouldn't. <laughs> So true. <laughs> and so that's like a really big part. All of this work, like boundaries, is um, absolutely fundamental to trauma healing work, uh, whether you're in the therapist's office or anywhere else. And so practicing feeling your body so you can start to know what it feels like when you're at a boundary. So you can start to maybe try and say no, even to well intentioned people. Okay, it's all part of the practice. And it's all, all of this is included in your book. Like, even though the book has a kettlebell on it and it talks about movement, like everything is so relatable to, you know, other situations in your life. You don't have to be working out at the gym in order to put what you're talking about in your book into practice. Um, it's, it's practical and it's, it hits in every different sector of life too. So, um, and I love that without saying that really, you say that in your book with the examples that you use. Um, so yeah, again, amazing book. I love it so much. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So, um, before we sign off, where can we one find your book? Cause I'll include a link in the show notes with it. Um, but also where can we find you? Where can we learn more from you? Um, so my website is lauracadari.com, which the link will be in the notes. I've said, so you don't have to worry about the spelling. Um, and on social media, on Instagram and Twitter, both I'm Laura Kaderi. On Facebook, where I'm not very active, I'm Laura KCPT. It's an old holdover. Um, and in terms of ordering my book, you can actually order my book from whomever you like to get your books from. Um, and you know, if you don't know where you want a suggestion, bookshop.org uh, is one. Also, if you check my Instagram, sometimes I'll have a link to, if you order from this bookstore now, you can get a signed copy. That does happen, um, depending on where I am in relationships with uh, independent booksellers in the area. So those are a few options. But yeah, if you don't know where to go, go with bookshop.org because they'll support independent booksellers. Nice. Very cool. Anything else that we didn't touch on that you feel like would be helpful for listeners? We like covered a lot of ground. I know it, it helps when I talk super freaking fast. It really just, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I think, well, I think what you said at the end there is really important. I mean, I don't know if you made it to the end of the podcast, if you didn't know this, but uh, it does talk about you don't have to be um, doing any sort of exercise for this book to um, for you to learn things from this book. It's really about how we change through uh, when we change because of trauma or just because of starting to learn things like our boundaries and stuff like that. It shifts in all areas of our life and it lets you know a little bit about how that can show up and sort of how to navigate that. Because um, in the end, the last part, recovery, you know, we're talking about boundaries and relationships and social media um, and all things that have nothing to do with that kettlebell on the cover, as you noted. <laughs> it's so good. It's amazing. 
Well, thank you so freaking much for taking the time to meet with me. This has been a highly anticipated interview for me. So (laughs) I'm so excited that we got to connect. Um, I'm really excited to read your book through again. I always re-listen to my podcast, but I know, especially this one, there's going to be things that I pick up and take notes on. Um, So thank you for all the work that you do and for putting it out there for all of us to soak up and learn from. (laughs) Well, I loved being here. Thank you so much. As always, thank you all so much for tuning in. I will see you back here in two weeks for another episode, but in the meantime, go give them the bird.